Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week it's all about cashless welfare cards and should we drug test both Newstart recipients and parliamentarians, plus we look at 1.2 million reasons why James Cook University should have left Peter Ritt alone. And finally we reflect on Robert Mugabe and his terrible legacy in Zimbabwe and uh, reflect on how easily a country can be destroyed. In our Books and Culture segment, we have some terrific picks, including Samuel Gregg's new book on reason and faith in Western civilization, a brace of movies on Apollo 11, the great Victor Davis Hanson on the Treaty of Versailles, and a classic of personal finance, The Barefoot Investor by Scott Pape. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined today on the line by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you very much, Scott. Great to have you, Chris, all the way from Singapore. Also in the IPA studio is Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. Thanks for having me. And a Senior Fellow in our Western Civilization Program, Dr. Zach Gorman. Good morning. Great to have you back on Looking Forward, Zach. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or make a tax-deductible donation. And if you're on the app listening to this podcast, this is your chance to give us a review and make it a good one. It all helps move us up the rankings. Uh, But we are going to start off today talking about uh, legislation that the federal government has reintroduced, uh, which is to extend trials of a cashless welfare card. Uh, There have been various uh, um, uh, locations in Australia where uh, firstly in Indigenous communities and then Uh, It's being mainstreamed for other welfare recipients. And uh, much of the coverage is an associated measure, which is to introduce drug testing for New Start recipients. Uh, The government's had a few goes at getting this through the Senate without much luck. Uh, But this time it looks like Jackie Lambie, the senator from the Maverick senator from Tasmania, who's talked uh, publicly quite a lot about her own experiences of, of poverty. Is she saying she's actually sympathetic to it, uh, drug testing for New Start recipients, so long as it also applies to parliamentarians? Um, one of the things that gets me about uh, th- these measures is the vehemence, vehemence uh, with which they're being fought by uh, the Greens and uh, various ac- aspects of the welfare lobby. But this is right up for grabs right at the moment. Exactly. I, th- I think it, it needs to be separated into two different issues. I think the cashless debit stuff. Personally, I'm uncomfortable with it. I don't think the government should control people's money, regardless of whether that's taxpayers' money going to them. Although a lot of the trial sites um, have actually been quite successful. And I think as long as it's a community uh, based decision rather than a top down decision from a position from Canberra, I think that's sort of the, the way to go. A lot of the communities it's been trialled in, the communities themselves have actually asked the government whether they could be the trial site for it. So I'm okay with that as long as it's a community decision uh, for it. I think on the drug testing uh, for welfare recipients is a lot different. Um, I think it's a Mickey Mouse idea. Uh, it sets a bad precedent in public policy. Um, uh, we, can own, we, can, we can already see uh, the next step Next logical step is the nanny state lobby uh, pushing for alcohol to be added to this, pushing for all sorts of other things to be added to this because we've set the precedent of, of drug testing. Uh, and I think 
Jackie Lambie has been as flip flopped on this. You know, all of the Sunday papers said that she was going to support it, and then on Monday she was opposed. I mean, she's really the poor man's Brian Harradine or the um, the juiced up Nick Xenophon uh, in, in her positioning on this bill. Uh, so you, you never really know which way she's going to go. But I think the important public policy uh, um, uh, decision on this it should be to oppose it. I don't think it's a good step to go down to, to drug test welfare recipients. Look, I dislike both of these policies really vehemently, and I take Evan's point about the cashless welfare policy if it's being introduced by the community, which is particularly um, uh, important in some indigenous and rural and remote communities. But by and large, what I dislike about this is the philosophical side of it. I do not think that the fact that somebody receives money from the government, whether rightly or wrongly, even if I think it's too generous or even if I think it's too stingy, I do not think that the fact that they receive the money from the government means that we get to make decisions about their lives, about the way we, about the way they can spend their money, about moral decisions that they might make, whether they use drugs, whether they um, spend their money on gambling or anything like that. I think that's the, that's, that, that is, it's not just a slippery slope. It is, it is the slope because the moment we decide that anybody receives, who is receiving support from the government in any way is therefore a ward of the state is, uh, you know, a lot of us receive lots of different funds from the government just by the nature of living in a large welfare state. I think it's an incredibly dangerous thing and I think we should be very firmly opposed to it. I, I, I disagree and I disagree for two reasons. The, f the first is at the, at the level of uh, the social harm being addressed. Uh, we, we're talking uh, about illegal substance abuse and we're, we're not talking about uh, even a sort of a semi-romantic ideal of, you know, sitting around, you know, bonging on uh, as an alternative to work, we, you know, we, we could be talking about uh, ICE, uh, all sorts of uh, terrible social situations uh, leading to uh, not just the destruction of the life of the individual concerned, but their, but their families. And I think there is a, a genuine issue there. There is a, a, a humanitarian uh, option that the uh, argument for this um, and I'm not saying they're wards of the state, but certainly uh, these are, uh, I guess, social harms that <laughs> it seems that uh, the community wants governments to do something about. And certainly in this case, we, we took, uh, has the additional driver of it, of, of being taxpayer-funded taxpayer welfare. But my, my second go at this, and the reason why I would invite uh, both you and Evan to uh, be a little bit more open to it is these are all about trials uh, I was moderately appalled at um, uh, one of the green senators on Q and a you know uh, screaming at the coalition senator oh, sorry not screaming but uh, repeatedly saying where's the evidence where's the evidence where's the evidence this this legislation that Jackie Lambie is considering waving through is actually to establish trials and this is almost a policy wonks um, uh, ideal type of policy evaluation they 
in response to a Senate committee, they've committed to setting up the evaluation design before they've done anything at all. They will hire a consultancy to monitor the entire thing. They've committed to consultation. We're talking about some thousands of randomly selected recipients. We're not, we're not talking about rolling this out across the country. This is actually how you go about feeling your way forward in a difficult uh, policy area. And, and to the government's uh, credit, they've, they've now been around long enough that they've been talking about this for about five or six years. Is it a priority, look, though? Look, I, 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 just think, um, I just think that this is essentially conservative virtue signalling. There are so many necessary reforms that this government refuses to engage with, but this is a nice, easy distraction. It's easy to sort of um, have a go at people on welfare. And I, I don't really have any problems with the sort of philosophical issues with this because obviously once you are receiving money from the government, you have no right to that money. I think it's reasonable for the government to attach terms and conditions to the money it gives to welfare recipients. I mean, look at the terms and conditions it attaches to the money it gives to state governments. Um, but the costs of implementation for drug testing and for the cashless welfare card, it just seems like wasteful government spending that's anti-conservative as soon as you look at the details, but because it creates a nice headline, that's why they're interested in it. I think what's happening, so to focus on the drug one, which um, which Scott, you've made the strongest argument for, I think, uh, putting all my cards on the table, I think drugs should be decriminalised or even legalised. But having said that, what we're not measuring here is drug abuse. We would be measuring drug use. And there's a really striking difference between those two things. So, yes, it's all well and good to, um, uh, to, to focus on the small number of people who use ICE in the community. But more likely, and almost uh, not just more likely, but almost certainly, this is going to catch people who recreationally use drugs, which is a surprisingly large percentage of the population. There's some evidence the best evidence that we have suggests that 43% of Australians have used drugs in their lifetime. Most of that is cannabis. Now, I find it very hard to get worried or excited about that and certainly not worried or excited enough to subject welfare recipients to this sort of coercive state power. Now, now I, I do take your point that the welfare system is, and this is Zach's point, the welfare system is, you know, once you've been given welfare by the government, then you you have the, you know, the government has the responsibility to make sure you're using it well. But as sort of liberals, we think there should be some bare minimum of state protection against unemployment. Maybe it's too much at the moment, but we think that there should be some of it. If any of us are in that circumstance, do we have a right to that support? Or um, should we be treated as if we are borderline criminals trying to shirk? This just goes back to our long welfare discussion that we've had on this podcast. The fact that so many of the regulations that the government imposes pushes people out of work. Why are we punishing those people once they are pushed out of the labour force? 
But you, you, you're, you're, you're saying that um, uh, a mandatory drug testing regime is, is prima facie punishment. I, I, I don't accept that. I mean, the, uh, there are drug testing regimes all over the place. You know, ask anyone uh, going into an underground coal mine in Queensland. I mean, there's, there's, you know, provided that they've actually managed to keep, keep their fluids up, this is uh, uh, an unremarkable, that's right, but, but, an, an unremarkable that's sort right. of thing. I, I, don't think, I don't think receiving welfare is responsibility. As underground, well, as underground. No, no, but but, but but the other part of the accusation that it's punitive, in we we should actually note that this is not. Oh my God, you've tested you've tested for ice. We're cutting you off. New start. The trial in it, the the two things that we're actually discussing today are linked. The consequences of a drug test are that you are moved on to the cash management system, so that uh, parts of your uh, New Start allowance are actually reserved uh, for necessary, such as as food, and can't be spent on ice. So, uh, for example, so I, I don't I don't buy the punitive aspect either either in the in the moral sense or or in the reality of what what the consequences of a positive drug test are. And and it's also um, the trial participants who po- uh, test positive twice to a testable drug will be referred to a medical professional. So. And if you fail to go see the medical professional, uh, that is when they'll start restricting your um, your payments. I still think it's a bad idea, but at least there are um, those steps in place. Yeah. It's not like um, test you know, positive for weed once and you're off uh, welfare completely. Yeah. And you've actually raised the one thing that I have the most doubts about, which is the ability of any so-called mental health professional to actually do anything about addiction. Correct. I mean, there's a massive industry about it, but... I remain to be convinced that they actually do very much. Mm. And I think the government's sort of justification for this is a little bit shallow. So obviously they're, they're going hardline on drugs and um, drugs might be part of the reason that people get stuck in welfare dependency and aren't looking for jobs and these sorts of things. But the other um, justification they brought out was that um, some of the trials they have done in the Northern Territory suggest that unemployment will go down if you... Um, introduce these cashless welfare cards. Well, if the New Start is offering people a luxurious enough life, and I know there's a big push to increase New Start and people say it's below the poverty line and all the rest of it, but if New Start is offering people a luxurious enough life that without a cashless welfare card, they're able to spend money on drugs and alcohol, then maybe the solution, rather than pay for all this bureaucracy to test all these things and to track people and to further this um, assault on the cash economy that we've also had issues with lately, maybe you just need to reduce New Start so there's less of this money available to spend in the first place. Gosh, that is a bold policy proposal. <laughs> that run a, run a <laughs> Cut new start down even further. <laughs> yes, yes if, if that's at all at all possible. This will be on The Guardian very soon. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, we've already abolished the minimum wage and, uh, yeah, so we might as well chuck that in as well. Um, I do remind everyone at the end that the views of anything, uh, the people, panellists do not necessarily accord with those of the IPA. Um, but w- one aspect where there is probably a little bit more consensus is uh, long-time listeners to Looking Forward will know that the IPA has always been greatly interested uh, in the, what's happened with uh, Dr Peter Ridd uh, and the termination of his employment by James Cook 
University and uh, there were big developments last week, Evan. Yeah, so on Friday it was announced in the Federal Circuit Court that Dr Peter Ridd will receive $1.2 million following the court's decision in April uh, that Dr Ridd was unlawfully sacked for questioning climate change science. Um, so I'll break that down. Uh, the damages awarded of $1.2 million is comprised of approximately 167000 for past wages and superannuation lost, 835000 for future wages and superannuation lost, and 90000 for general damages, and also 125000 as a pecuniary penalty to JCU. Um, Judge Vaster um, had a real go at JCU for some of the actions they engaged in following his decision, like immediately tweeting about it and putting out a media release questioning his decision and uh, suggesting they'll appeal. He said that that was almost in contempt. That, that was back when they, he made the original determination, yes. not, not the award of damages, but yes. the, yes. the so actual finding against JCU. That, that, was, that was for the finding. Now... Um, uh, this this all gets very interesting because, of course, we know it's actually been brought up in the uh, coalition party room. Um, there's a lot of people that are interested in this case, a lot of people even on the left that are uh, supportive of, of Dr Ridd's position, not for his position on climate change, of course, but his, uh, his position on freedom of speech. And he's got supporters like the NTEU in Queensland. Um, uh, but it, more interesting thing, how far can... Um, should taxpayer funds go to fight this judgment? We already know through a freedom of information request uh, put in by the IPA that JCU, uh, up until May, had spent at least 630000 uh, on this case. We think it's actually a lot more than that. Um, but uh, is it time for JCU's counsel to step in and, and, and restore sanity, given the reputational damage? Um, but also, is it time for uh, Education Minister Dan Tehan uh, to intervene and, and meet with JCU Council and meet with the Vice-Chancellor and, and put a halt to this? I think it is. Um, there's been talk of Christian Porter using a special fund available to him uh, as the Attorney-General to a, t a test case fund uh, because it is a significant, I think, enough case. It's one of the biggest cases in academic freedom um, I can remember. Um, should uh, taxpayer funding be used in such a case as to defend Peter Reid against the uh, taxpayer-funded behemoth that is JCU? There's two things there, surely. So there's the question of whether the government should fund the defence case for... or sorry, the, the, um, the case for Peter Reid, I should say, um, uh, and that's the Christian Porter side. But the other one is should the education minister be telling JCU not to pursue the case further. Now, I, I, I don't have a strong view on whether the um, uh, taxpayers should support his, uh, the, the RID side of the argument. In fact, that seems to be a reasonably legitimate thing if the government thinks there's genuine public policy questions that need to be answered through the legal system. I don't have a huge problem with that. I would have a lot more of a problem if the education minister told or instructed in any way or um, uh, nudged a private university or sorry I should say a public university but a privately operated university to um, uh, make policy decisions about its own HR project and I, 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 I hope that doesn't sound too excessively nuanced but I think there's a really key distinction there JCU can run its own independent HR 
litigation, it can run its own independent HR policies and programs. Um, uh, but if the government decides there's a serious um, uh, public interest in making sure that academic freedom is protected, then backing Peter Ridd in the court, I think, is no, no great problem. It can run its programs independently as long as it funds them independently, as far as I'm concerned. If you look at how much government funding JCU is getting, explicitly a, a vast majority of it, I would imagine, would be for reef research, would be for climate research. So the fact that they can't claim independence when they're not taking the sort of financial steps to get independence, and that's the one of the reasons that they're fighting so hard, hard to, against Peter Reid ultimately is that the gravy chain of climate change has really corrupted the university system where they have to prove that the reef is dying or otherwise the money turns off. And if they're not going to let the money turn off. They're not a sandstone university. JCU's claim to fame is that it is the university that is, a, that is closest to the Great Barrier Reef that's able to do this research. Oh, look, I'd, I'd be more inclined to agree with you, but I, I think there's there's a general failure of governance of, of universities in Australia because of their history of, of, of being established by the states and then funded by the Commonwealth. We seem to have these um, university councils or, uh, that um, don't really seem to have much in the way of accountability. The, the vice-chancellors vice seem to be the most powerful vice-chancellors in the world vis-a-vis um, uh, their supposed governing councils. Uh, so I'd be a little bit more inclined to say that uh, uh, ministers should keep their beak out, except uh, th- th- there's just all the incentives would be to keep throwing money at it. Because, that, that, you know, they're in a hole, they'll, they'll just keep digging. They've already spent probably a million bucks at least. How much more could they, could they spend? Uh, they've got the deep pockets, they've got the incentive to protect these, these rivers of gold from, from climate research. Uh, I, th- I, I don't think a little bit of nudging in this case hurts. If only, if only to you know pop the bubble of the of the groupthink and the and the ducking for cover that must be going on inside the governance institutions of of JCU. I'd love to see the council stand up. I'd I'd like to know who's actually on it and 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 so you're not just there to to have a quarterly meeting and a nice cup of coffee with the vice chancellor. You're actually there to take responsibility and responsibility in this case might actually mean just taking a hit, saying, "Yep, that's it. We're going to draw a line under this." Uh, we'll dispute to our dying day whatever Peter Ridd said about the the reef being healthy, even though he's just been there and looked at it again, um, you know, off Bowen and and along with Jennifer Mariassi and found some remarkably healthy bits of uh, reef. But they should just rule a line under it and move on. And if they can't do that themselves, then good on Dan Teen if he does actually ring up a few times and say, mate, how, how are you going with that litigation? Yeah, we're seeing this self-interest. It sort of strikes, it sort of strikes me that this is... This is, sorry, Evan, it sort of strikes me that the, this is the same conversation we just had about the cashless welfare, because if you're receiving money from the government, then we get to decide what you do independent of that delivery of funds. As I understand your argument, Scott, there's a massive crisis in accountability in the university sector, and it's not responsive to its um, customers, and it's not responsive to the policy environment. And instead of tackling that head on, we're just going to instruct the minister every once in a while to target and intervene when there are politically sensitive cases. I think that is a, I think the, the case for higher education reform is really strong, but I don't think that we should pretend that we are doing anything to help academic freedom if we just bitterly try to defend 
high-profile cases against um, questionable universities. But then we are also mounting a parallel argument uh, that it should be, at the very least, uh, the implementation of the French recommendations. Uh, Dan Tien is is waiting for the universities to uh, to move on and, and of their own volition introduce a code of conduct to enshrine academic freedom uh, along the lines that French recommended. And it's it's glacial. Uh, so if, if, if they had have just, you know, again, copped the French report, moved on, changed their guidelines, enshrined academic freedom, had a model code of conduct adopted across the entire university sector, well, maybe I'd be a little bit... A little bit bullshit about it. Can I just say, I think this argument <laughs> is cultural and it's one of the defining cultural arguments of our time because we're seeing not only within the university um, professors and, and other academics trying to shut down dissenting views, but we're seeing it outside of the university as well. We've seen recently a, a bunch of scientists come out to try to dispute uh, Peter Ridd's uh, science and uh, arguments around... Uh, uh, some legislation that's going through that'll affect farmers in Queensland and runoff that supposedly goes to the Great Barrier Reef. And we saw Media Watch cover this, and we saw the same professor who literally, Terry, Dr. Terry Hughes, uh, Professor Terry Hughes, literally in the court documents, the one that uh, triggered the complaint, was also the one that um, was signed the document saying Peter Ridd was wrong, and Media Watch didn't see any need to, to put that. But I'll also go to the other point. Uh, about uh, Peter Ridd and Jennifer Marahasi's work. Um, we've got this science, uh, peer-reviewed science uh, coming out say, around Stone Island saying that all these corals are, are dead and they're, they're gone and they're not growing back. Dr Ridd and, and, and uh, Jennifer Marahasi actually went to uh, Stone Island and found that uh, the corals were alive and well. They were gaining colour and they actually looked at where the uh, academics said uh, the uh, coral was dead from, and it was found to be falsely true based on the photographs. So, how how it, it's a cultural issue in terms of it starts in the universities. If we stop free speech at the universities, they're gonna uh, it'll bubble out to outside of universities, and we won't be able to have a debate on climate change at all. Yeah, and and uh, it's as much about catastrophism as anything else. It's it's. Uh it's an unwillingness to, to look at alternative views and just leap to the most catastrophist uh, conclusion you ever saw. And um, actually one of uh, Jennifer's, uh, Jennifer Marahasi's uh, uh, blog posts about this, uh, the inspections they've been doing of the reef, uh, there's a wonderful response uh, by a bloke who calls himself has been. Um, but he, he recalled that he took a boat out, a boatload of scientists out in 1985 from the Australian Institute of Marine Science and the Great Barrier Reef uh, Marine Park Authority and they all had a wonderful time uh, diving, uh, snorkelling or scuba diving on the reef which was uh, looking very good and all of them would come back up to the boat and say, what a shame, it's all going to be destroyed. <laughs> and, you know, that was, uh, that was 1985 and this is just the mindset. If you keep, keep looking for that kind of evidence, you're going to find it. And, and but it gets you published it does, in it does speak to a massive it does speak to a massive lack of confidence in the um, in fact in the peer review and academic search for truth itself when you um, cannot broke any alternative perspectives whether they are pushed in a peer-reviewed or non-peer-reviewed venue do you think that the marketplace of ideas is going to come up with the right answers or come up with an approximation of the truth 
or not. You have to pick one. And if you've decided that it isn't, then it's very hard to understand why you as an academic have spent your life trying to engage in that process of truth-seeking through debate. Indeed, and uh, that's why uh, we must continue. And, and, we, and we do value the role of, I guess, independent researchers, independent scientists, uh, like Jennifer Marihassi and, and now Peter Ridd. Is a, he's been forcibly made an independent scientist, and that, that's why their continuing contribution is so vital. It's not that they have the answers on, on everything. They don't, the difference is they don't expect to have the answers on anything, but they can shine a light and introduce new information that, that institutional figures don't, don't seem to want to introduce into whatever the debate is. And uh, it's why we need podcasts like Looking Forward. Uh, join, or, <laughs> join or donate at ipa.org.au. Um, now, moving internationally, um, uh, we had we had some news. Some people were moved to tears, uh, others not so much. Um, probably not around this table. But Robert Mugabe, for 37 years, the leader of Zimbabwe, uh, post-independence, uh, Zimbabwe, formerly Rhodesia, uh, passed away at the age of 95. And this is a chance... Uh, perhaps not so much just to talk about Robert Mugabe and his personal legacy, but um, what, what that rule symbolises and, and what the state of Zimbabwe today uh, tells us about uh, human flourishing. Uh, well, I would say that Zimbabwe is a bit of a post-colonial mess, unfortunately. Um, Mugabe rose to power because he was a guerrilla fighter against the apartheid government of southern Rhodesia, and the apartheid government of southern Rhodesia obviously needed to be gotten rid of. It wasn't democratic. It wasn't any of the things that we sort of um, espouse in the rest as West as far as political values are concerned. But unfortunately, it got replaced with something that was even worse. Mugabe's government was elected in 1980, but that was basically the last legitimate election it had. There's been all sorts of accusations of political interference and violence and intimidation to keep him in power all this time. He was ousted in a military coup a couple of years ago, um, mainly because the rumour was that he was about to appoint his wife as his successor and really turn Zimbabwe into a dynastic dictatorship. But of all the sort of human rights violations that Mugabe is famous for, probably the most infamous are encouraging um, black Africans to attack white farmers and drive them off their land through violence, which completely undermined the Zimbabwean economy, completely undermined property rights and led to billion percentage point inflation. And it really does highlight the necessity of property rights and the necessity of these sort of building blocks of capitalism and building blocks of prosperity that we sort of take for granted. Yeah, so, so Mugabe is really the last great decolonial um, uh, revolutionary, and I don't mean great in a positive sense, but he's the last, um, or was the last surviving one of that generation um, who, who um, once they decided to oppose colonial regimes, adopted a sort of um, local nationalism, um, and once they were in power, then really did devastating things to the economy in pursuit of that national vision and the land redistribution um was the is is basically the the prototypical um version of that just tearing through an existing 
economy that um, uh, had a existing distribution of property rights, undermining that, um, uh, really uprooting the entire agricultural base of society and its financial base as well, because, of course, a lot of banks are lending to farmers on the basis of secure property rights and so forth. And, of course, Zimbabwe has never recovered from that, and so much of the Zimbabwean um, economic disaster is based around that. But Mugabe himself sort of policy by policy sought to double down. So there was there were nationalization programs until really in, until the last years before he was ousted. Um, there, there are quite recent nationalization attempts and um, uh, successful and failed um, in the Zimbabwe economy. And it just it just it, it goes to show you that that institutional failure that he introduced um, uh, has really significant consequences. You cannot play with an economy and just hope the wealth that gave you an economy to play with will survive. Yeah, you'll remember in 2000, um, uh, his government actually lost a referendum on a, a, a draft constitutional change. Um, and then the parliamentary election was actually four months later and a newly formed opposition party with that was basically spawned out of that no campaign uh, he saw posed a serious threat, and that's when Mugabe sort of unleashed his personal militia and kicked whites off farms, and 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 all the rest is history. Um, I was very surprised to see uh, the U.S. embassy tweet, uh, which went something along the lines of "The United States exp- extends its condolences to the Mugabe family." and the people of Zimbabwe as they mourn the passing of former President Robert Mugabe. We join the world in reflecting on his legacy in securing Zimbabwe's independence. Oh, I was wow. absolutely shocked to see that from the United States Embassy. It's now been deleted, thankfully. Uh, I think that's what you get when you have uh, career diplomats uh, running the Twitter account. Well, the, the, the head of the UN uh, um, uh, also said something uh, similar. It, completely passed over a human rights record or anything else, just said uh, uh, passed on condolences. So that's the sort of world that uh, Mugabe travelled very well in. But it, it's um, thank you, Chris, for reflecting on on uh, on that be- and, and Zach talking about institutions because, you know, I've read, a, you know, uh, a couple of dozen articles just researching this and they're, they're either inane, like the head of the UN and the, and the uh, ambassador from the US, or, or they, or they just talk about tyranny, like it's just some kind of abstract thing. Oh, you know, he suspended elections and persecuted his opponents, and isn't it terrible that he was such a tyrant? But I reckon, you know, I've only seen about two, uh, which actually point out uh, the the economic devastation is related to the state running everything uh, in that country. Yeah. When, when you have untrammeled state power, and if they had have even expropriated. Uh, white farmers and given secure title to black farmers, you would have had a better outcome than the one you've got. Essentially, they they uh, he enabled the thugs to chase people off their land and then squatters to move in. And, and all over Africa, the, the blight is people who are squatting and, and, and not always uh, uh, through violent means, but squatting without secure property rights. And without secure property rights, uh, there's no ability to borrow, there's no incentives to invest, and this is exactly what we're seeing. Tyranny and this sort of economic, sort of national socialism are the same thing. You can't have one without the other, and or the, you know one inherently leads to the other. So um, 
one of the biggest the biggest issue in in the um, Zimbabwean economy right now um, since the um, redistribution of the land um, uh, is is corruption. So the biggest issue right now is nepotism, cronyism, and all that sort of stuff. That comes out naturally from this sort of centrally planned economy. If you're going to replace markets with politics, you're going to get politics. And politics is going to give you nepotism. It's going to give you cronyism. It's going to give you corruption. It's going to necessitate the need for bribes because people are making decisions on political rather than market-oriented Reasons and and so the, the the Zimbabwean package per se comes out from what I see as that sort of 1970s 1980s African national nationalism response to colonialism. Now I don't think colonialism caused this, but I think we can be critical of colonial authorities as as, as we've discussed in, in the case of Hong Kong for failing to introduce liberal institutions, liberal, liberal political institutions, while they were in charge of these various countries. All it did was open up the opportunity for, um, uh, for someone like Mugabe to come through and, and really run roughshod over what had been a remarkably wealthy Southern African nation. Well, I would say that obviously... Um, the colonial legacy is appalling, and particularly southern Rhodesia, it was one of the last um, sort of parts of the British Empire to be conquered. Um, the sort of roots of any sort of liberal political institutions were laid very shallow um, in that area. But I think we also um, can't see the wood for the trees sometimes with the importance of our own culture and um, how deep the respect for property rights are and how much that informs the success that the West experiences. I mean, you have things going back, bring out my Magna Carta research, things going back to Thomas Aquinas um, defending property rights, Sir Edward Cook, um, the fa father of the common law in the early Stuart period, saying that the whole purpose of the common law was to protect liberty and property, and that's what the entire British legal system was based on. This culture can't just be implanted overnight. It's, it's, that's one of the real problems, is that um, none of these political institutions in Africa are really organic or um, have evolved out of the people themselves and the people themselves really buying into them. Well, the, the I, I don't think it can be implanted, but but you can't say that you need to have it for a thousand years or, or or way back to the Magna Carta for it to exist. Because obviously, in countries that have a non-Western legal system or a non-Western legal tradition, we have found liberal institutions. So Japan is the most obvious one. Hong Kong is another really obvious one, and hopefully. It survives in Hong Kong, but but it's not like you need to have that. So I don't think that you can enforce liberalism at the barrel of the gun, and I don't know that you can enforce it through a um, uh, through a strict colonial regime. But I don't think that that means that we should give up on um, encouraging native liberal institutions to develop. Oh, and, um, and indeed, uh, and we and we should recognise that this is this is happening uh, in other countries. I mean, we're talking about Zimbabwe is is. Thankfully, um, uh, not as typical of post-colonial Africa as it as it might have been. Uh, there's been uh, tremendous growth in, say, uh, Botswana, which is a bit of a poster child, um, and in many, in they do have stronger institutions. They've sort of grounded them in in some of their own local traditions. 
Um, Ghana had a long tradition of trying uh, trying to introduce free market reforms. In Kenya, uh, there's a wonderful program uh, by our friends in the Atlas Network calling called Doing Development Differently, which has a lot of basic interventions around things like uh, secure property rights and, and how um, uh, farmers uh, squatting or, or even uh, uh, squatters in urban areas can be given secure title and, and the benefits of that have, have been seen. So one, one would hope that, you know, there, in, in Zimbabwe somehow that, that path forward will be recognised, that this is not the permanent state it's certainly not. It's certainly nothing to do with African culture, because per se, because there are other African countries that are that are forging ahead and building those institutions. And that's that's the that's the tragedy of Zimbabwe, because it's missing, or the tragedy is made all the more clear because it's missing out on what what we now describe as the African growth miracle, which is between five and ten percent growth in countries across. Um, uh, the African continent, and and in countries that in the 1990s we thought were were really really um, uh, devastating, um, devastatingly poor countries like say Ethiopia, which has grown remarkably over the last decade and a half. So so the fact that we can see that you can have stable semi-liberal regimes with extremely high growth rates just makes the tragedy or the missed opportunities of Zimbabwe all the greater. Indeed. Indeed, and we have come to that part of the show where we uh, talk about our books, picks for books and culture. Who would like to lead us off today? Um, so I'll go first. Um, I've been reading Samuel Gregg's um, new book on reason and faith um, and the struggle for Western civilization. So there's been a lot of discussion lately about um, cultural relativism and moral relativism. Can you relativism. tell us who Samuel Gregg is, first um, of all, Zach? So he has a PhD from the University of Oxford. He has a master's degree um, from the University of Melbourne, I'm pretty sure. And he's uh, the head of um, some American think tank. The name escapes me right now. Is that Acton? Yeah, I think it's the Acton Institute. Um, So the discussion, a lot of the discussion has been about um, relativism and how it's eating away at the West from the inside um, to the point where you have a number of sort of fringe conservatives really taking aim at the Enlightenment and saying that sort of the Enlightenment led inevitably to secularization and to um, postmodernism and all these various things. Greg takes a more middle ground approach where he says that the Enlightenment was ultimately a good thing, um, but the reason that particularly the early Enlightenment was so good was that it combined rational inquiry and this search for knowledge and this search to improve human lives with a real grounding in faith and truth. And one of the real problems is that um, that reason has been, in the West, reason and faith have been divorced from each other, that um, people think that faith is the antithesis of reason, so therefore you go down these paths of what Greg describes as scientism, where only things that can be proven can be very clearly proven. You can believe that they exist, but then th- certain things as far as morality and all the rest of it can't be proven in a test lab. They can't be proven by empirical research. They have to be based on belief, on sort of natural law. Um, and that's what he sort of argues is the way forward for the West, is to somehow re-establish that understanding that there is a truth um, at the base of everything, that we do know certain things 
um, sort of innately, we sort of innately know what right and wrong is, and that's the sort of Christian tradition of natural law was people like Aquinas looking back to Aristotle and seeing that these people who clearly weren't Christian had morals that were pretty much the same as Christian morals. How did they achieve that? Well, they developed this theory of natural law, which is this innate um, thing within human beings to know between right and wrong, and that there are right and wrong, and that's what postmodernism sort of undermines is to argue that there's no longer um, right and wrong, there's only social contracts and all the rest of it. Um, but the problem probably with Greg's book overall is that he, he is a Catholic and I really um, empathise with all his points, but at the end of the day, um, his solution is almost proselytising. Like, it's, it's very hard to understand how you're going to recapture that faith and recapture, say, a, um, say a John Locke who's not only talking about freedom but talking about a freedom grounded in Christian ideals about um, individual free choice and all these, uh, all these concrete things that then you can extrapolate political theories from. But isn't, isn't without being too flippant about it, isn't the solution to everything always just proselytising? Because we exist in an environment, whether we're in a democratic or non-democratic community, where we have to convince our fellow um, citizens about the right way to think about themselves, about the political system that rules them and so forth. I just sort of, I, I, I worry sometimes when we have these conversations that we don't think of ourselves as actors, uh, that we don't think that we ourselves can influence um, the change that we want to see in the world through conversation, through debate, through podcasts called Looking Forward, through... Um, highly uh, through, effective. Through convers highly effective. Through conversations with our friends and family and so forth. And one, one thing that I like about a approach like Samuel Gregg's is really the, the, taking the, the Christian idea of proselytization and saying, well, that in fact is our job as members of a political community to do that, whether we're doing it on television or on a bar or, or, or at a local barbecue. I think that that's a really key thing. Too many people these days are um, are upset that they're not getting their way, so they think, oh, well, we'll have to use state power. In fact, no, I think we, we need to focus more on convincing each other. I, I think you're everyone's allowed to do that except anyone who has religion as one of their actual core motivating forces. You're allowed to be a public intellectual for everything except religion, I think. But um, And I say that as a not particularly well, no, religious no, but, but person. You're, you're, but but my, my point is not that you're allowed to be a public intellectual. You're allowed to be a citizen. So you, you are and have a responsibility if you're a believer. And bearing in mind, I'm an atheist, but, but you, as a believer in something, you have a responsibility to share that belief with your friends and family and acquaintances and so forth, if you think that that's true enough that other people should agree. That's a call to arms. Nicely done. Cool. So my culture pick this week is uh, The Barefoot Investor, the only finance guide you'll ever need by Scott Pape. Um, now, this is the best-selling book in Australia, I think three or four years in a row. Uh, over 1 million Australians has, have read it, so I thought, good um, including myself, so I, I thought it'd be good to <laughs> use it as a culture pick. Um, I'll, I'll explain it briefly and then talk about, I think, what it means culturally in, in Australia. So basically, he asks 
uh, the readers or listeners, it's an audiobook as well, um, to uh, divide your income into sort of buckets and, and, and go through these barefoot steps um, with either yourself or with your partner. Um, and he asks you to schedule a, a, a monthly date night to go through these steps and, and set up your 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 plan and then um, and go through from there. So um, the buckets he talks about, uh, basically you, you've got your one big bucket, which he calls the blow bucket. And that's where all of your income goes and all of your partner's income goes. Now, 60% of that is used on uh, daily expenses. So your power bills, your insurance, your uh, all sorts of things like that. You've got 10% of your income uh, to use on splurge. So daily things, lunches, um, uh, you know, coffees, beers at the pub after work, um, that kind of things you would splurge on. 10% of your income is a smile. Uh, called your smile account. That is where you'll um, use things like uh, going to the movies, uh, concert tickets, holidays. Twenty percent of your income drugs, is what's called drugs a, as well. Twenty <laughs> percent of your income is what's called a fire extinguisher account. This is the big uh, events that happen, uh, big costs that you might not see coming. Say you've been involved in a car bingle and you've got some uh, uh, bills you need to pay that come out of nowhere. They're the kind of things that your fire extinguisher account is for. Um, and it's enabled a lot of people to step three is sort of domino your debts. You should get rid of all your, your credit cards. He, he, he reckons if you've got an Amex card or a Velocity or a Qantas card to cut it up immediately. Um, but it has been very good. It's been very good for me personally. Um, my wife and I have gotten rid of, I think, the four credit cards in the space of only only sort of six months because um, it, it actually works. Um and I wanted to talk about what this means culturally because he really encourages people to to buy a home, uh, to 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 get into the the property market um, and save for your retirement and save for a family. Um, one of the thing, and, and so hundreds of thousands of people have posted on his Facebook feed with cut either cut up photos of cut up credit cards or um, them buying their own home thanks to him. And what I think it's doing. Uh, points back to some sort of research that we've done is create creating a generation of Australians that are, are, are very self-reliant, uh, are homeowners, um, and uh, which I think would naturally predispose them against bigger government. Uh, it's the idea of an asset-owning democracy or a stakeholder democracy where they've got an actual stake in uh, being against bigger government. And I, I think it's actually a really good thing. Absolutely, I, I, I was uh, I have a great great mate in in Sydney who's uh, a, like an actuary, uh, works for a very large financial firm, uh, so incredibly financially literate in matters. And then uh, I was out having a beer with him last year, and he, he produced his debit card on which he'd actually written the name of the bucket to which it corresponded so that's what he encourages people to do so you'll see people with mostly orange ing cards because that's what he recommends um uh and because it's sort of he sees is that there's the best sort of account for these things um and people will take out their orange card which has big text on it you know splurge or um, daily expenses or smile um and use that for certain things yeah it's so it's so important because you can talk about the values of of thrift and saving and and moderating your expenditure but you actually need a sort of a an intellectual technology to to know how it's to a, do and it. he does it in a way in which is automatic particularly, so you, particularly 
when marriage is involved. Exactly. It's hard you, enough to govern yourself. Once you set up the automatic transfers, it, it's just um, you, you, you don't have to worry about it. It just happens. Um, but I think, yeah, culturally, I think it's a good thing for society that over a million Australians have read it and you've got hundreds of thousands of people that are doing it and are, are self-reliant and are, have either bought their own home. Like, there's a lot of people that would never have dreamed of paying off their credit cards and owning a home that now do because they've read this book. I think there's a policy story here, which is quite interesting. So um, one of the frustrations is that it's very hard for us as consumers or customers of banks to access data about um, our own data on the bank's website or apps or something like that. So the government's actually introduced what's called open banking legislation that would require banks to provide that data to us. Now, I have some mixed feelings about that um, legislation and the shape of that legislation, but it is an indication that we are moving in an environment where we're able to control our finances and learn more about our finances better in the way that the barefoot investor seems want us to do so and that would be a good thing now while we've got you uh with your phone uh chris what is your culture pick yeah so i actually have two culture picks i watched the um apollo 11 documentary it's a documentary released this year um and then i watched first man i'd actually seen it once before first man of course is the um uh is the fictionalized or the fictionalized depiction of the landing on the moon um, Apollo 11 is an incredibly good documentary, an incredibly fascinating documentary because it's full of a lot of, it's made entirely out of archival footage of the moon mission and archival audio, which you've just never seen before, um, uh, has never been released to the public as well, and just shows the really practical human side of this remarkable feat of engineering. And then, you know, you go back and watch First Man, which is, not as um, entertaining a film as it as it well could be, but it does show you that um, uh, uh, the, the the extraordinary, risky and extraordinary um, lengths they went to to land on the moon. Thank you, Chris. Uh, a couple of movies there that I actually look forward to seeing on uh, streaming in due course, uh, both the documentary and the um, First Man movie. And apologies uh, to any listeners who could pick up the building noise in the in the background. Just some uh, further works being done on our our premises, which seem seem endless, but we are getting there. Uh, my my culture pick actually is uh, from the great Victor Davis Hanson, the um, uh, U.S. West Coast professor of uh, military history, uh, now at the Hoover Institution, and uh, he I was listening picked up a podcast. Uh, recently, uh, which was on his views on the Treaty of Versailles. And he'd actually written a piece in the Journal of American Greatness uh, marking the anniversary of the Treaty of Versailles. So back in, back in July, 100 years since it was signed to officially draw World War I, the, the Great War, to a, to a close. And as an aside, Zach, I, I did think that, you know, I'm looking forward to you one day starting the Journal of Australian Greatness. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be a, an apt sort of uh, uh, pastime for uh, you. It'd, it'd turn into the Journal of New South Wales Greatness. <laughs> New, South, New South Wales uh, uh, Classical Liberal Greatness. Uh, but uh, no, I think the scope could be wider than that. Um, but uh, the great Victor Davis Hanson tackles uh, a few things that everybody knows. Everybody knows 
uh, that there was no point to World War One. Everybody knows, thanks to the John Maynard Keynes critique, that the Treaty of Versailles was a, a, a disaster because it was a, a Carthaginian peace, uh, a punitive treaty, all these kinds of things that uh, Victor Davis Hanson tackles head on. Um, he makes a number of points which are just abrasing and certainly worth listening to. He points out that the Treaty of Versailles was not the disaster. The first disaster was the armistice because he said after four years of terrible warfare, they'd finally broken the back of the German army and called an armistice just when it was about to collapse. But instead of having it collapsed and the, uh, the Allies driving towards Berlin... Uh, and the Germans people having to admit that the whole thing had been a disaster, they stopped while the front line was still in French and Belgian territory and that this allowed uh, the German high command and then uh, later uh, the uh, uh, demobilised troops to, to propagate this myth that you know they'd never been defeated on the battlefield and it was all just a stab in the back uh, it was all communists and Jews and otherwise Germany would have won the war. A, a complete myth which, as Hansen points out, was enabled by the armistice. Um, a few more months, and, and I don't think this is an outrageous claim at all, uh, our own uh, General Sir John Monash had been part of a wave of terrific vi victories on the Western Front. The Americans were coming in. The, the Americans had mobilised one million troops within the first year. Uh, he also... On the point about it being a punitive treaty, he says, well, compared to the treaty that the uh, Germans imposed on the Russians uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution, when they just swallowed huge swathes of, of territory in the east, um, it was not a punitive peace at all. Compared to the treaty that Germany imposed on the French after the Franco-Prussian War in 1870-71, it was not a punitive uh, treaty at all. So this is really taking aim at, at the Keynesian view, which we always take aim at the Keynesian view uh, on this sh on this podcast. And in this case, it's, it's Keynes's view of the Versailles Treaty, um, this, this, that it was, a, it was a myth. And uh, to the extent that uh, the critique of it drove economic collapse in Germany and thus led to the rise of the Nazis... Again, Hansen makes a point, well, the only mistake they made was that the, um, the reparations that they'd imposed on Germany were denominated in the local currency, which just created an incentive for them um, uh, to create hyperinflation, which they did. They destroyed their economy in the process, but they felt good about it because it meant that the British and the French weren't getting the money that they'd been um, promised at Versailles. So the disaster was not in the concept of reparations per se, it was how it was actually implemented. So there's a, a terrific podcast um, out of the Hoover Institution. It's called The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, uh, which uh, often listen to and highly recommend. Uh, I'll link to that and I'll also link to the, uh, to the original journal article. So um, whenever we talk about the Great War, I always think of uh, an article by Frank Fioretti where he said, uh, the Great War, no end in sight. We are still living with its, <laughs> its consequences a uh, hundred years later uh, through the Russian Revolution, um, World War II, um, the post-war order. All of these things date, date back to that. So it's not just historical interest. It's, um, it's important we understand the, the true lessons from that. We have reached the end of 
looking forward for another week. It is my first duty to thank very much our panellists for today, Chris Berg. Thank you. Evan Mulholland. Thanks. And Zach Gorman, thanks for being on the show. Cheers, uh, also, I'd like to thank the back, backstage crew of Saw Muscatel, Josh Stranger and Cy Robinson. Uh, thank you for uh, doing all those wonderful things in the control room, which I don't understand, but which enable us to reach thousands of people all over Australia and the world. The Looking Forward podcast is brought to you by the IPA. Please log in to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.